0: Welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone, produced by Origins at Ohio State. I'm your host, Patrick Payandi,
1: And I'm your other host, Leticia Wiggins.
0: Engraved on the facade of the United States Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. is the famous clause, equal justice under the law. To fulfill that lofty promise at the end of this past year, 2014, President Barack Obama signed an executive order to establish the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. And there was, to put it mildly, very good reason for this.
1: Early last year, street protesters flared up in Albuquerque after the police fatally shot James Boyd, a homeless man with a history of mental illness. This event triggered a scathing review of the local police department, widely criticized for its abuse of extreme force. Then,
0: just this past August, the lethal shooting of Michael Brown, a black teenager, by Darren Wilson, a white police officer, in the St. Louis suburb Ferguson, Missouri, brought widespread protests against police violence once again to the national stage. In this event's aftermath, questions of policing and racial profiling came to the fore.
1: In the wake of the non-indictment of the police officer who killed Eric Garner and who was caught on video doing it, to name just one other killing on a long, long list, President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing seeks to fight crime and reform police departments by building public trust and examining how to foster strong collaborative relationships between local law enforcement and the communities they protect.
0: Things are now coming to a head, but these concerns are, sadly, nothing new. Indeed, issues of policing have been with us since this nation's very founding.
1: So today, three historians will explore the long history of policing with us, pointing to a long past where some communities have been policed more harshly than others. This begs the question, when will we see, quote-unquote, equal justice under the law? Stay tuned.
2: Thank you for having me. It's uh, definitely a pleasure. I am Marcus Nevius, Ph.D. candidate uh, in African-American history here at The Ohio State University. Hi, it's uh, great to be
3: here again. My name is Clay Howard, and I'm an assistant professor of history here at OSU.
4: Hi, I'm Lilia Fernandez, associate professor in the Department of History uh, at Ohio State.
0: All right, thanks for joining us today. Um, So to get started, most of the news media covering the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and other black men Doesn't usually delve into the longer history that contextualizes these events, if it delves into history at all. So, what can we learn about policing if we take a longer view, bringing the focus back to the early 1800s? And Marcus, if you want to get us started here. Absolutely. Recent scholarship has shown us that
2: policing is nothing new in the United States. In fact, since the uh, 1970s, we have come to understand that the United States has been, long been, an incarceration nation. We know that, for instance, styles of policing are rooted in slave patrols uh, that were very common in the antebellum American South. And we know also that policing of racialized groups, for instance, slaves or free blacks in the North dates to the antebellum era as well. Uh, one primary example of this is the 1854 case, the rendition of Anthony Burns who was an escaped slave from Virginia and spent some significant time in Boston before he was uh, identified as a fugitive slave, as it were, and spirited back to Virginia. Uh, What we do know about this particular case is that the mayor of Boston hired an ad hoc group of Irishmen playing on the racial environment of the city of Boston at the time uh, to both – Capture Anthony Burns and ensure his uh, return to Virginia, and to also uh, ensure that the people who supported anti slavery at the time in Boston would not interfere with the rendition uh, similarly, uh, recent scholarship has shown us that in terms of slave patrols in the antebellum South, two very important fears were at the core of the reasons: one was a fear of slave revolt, and that was uh, patrollers were to control the movements of enslaved people to ensure that they could not organize and revolt against the system. And secondarily, if you take an even longer view to the 17th century, uh, competition between imperial powers, the Spanish, the English, uh, and the Dutch in particular, created a need also for patrollers to ensure that uh, uh, imperial interlopers would not – attempt to take back these settlements.
0: Do we think these slave patrols uh, have kind of a parallel in a more modern period?
4: Well, um, you know, one thing that the slave patrols bring to mind is um, the fact that uh, law enforcement or policing has really been historically about controlling labor, right, as Marcus is pointing out. Um, In the case of um, enslaved African-American workers, this was about maintaining... um, a workforce that was obedient and you know, disciplining them and keeping them um, in line, essentially, and preventing revolts or uprisings. But even later in the uh, 19th century, during the era of industrialization, uh, policing uh, and uh, patrolling uh, urban communities was really about controlling urban industrial workers, and maintaining the social order and really protecting the interests of um, capital. So anyone who was, you know, striking or out protesting or um, advocating uh, radical political ideas was seen as threatening to, uh, you know, uh, an obedient and, um, and well-behaved labor force and as threatening to the social order. And, of course, uh, maintaining the social order was the other um, aspect of that.
3: One of the things that the question made me think of is, um, you know, one of the definitions of, of modern life is, is that people live amongst a sea of strangers people they'll never they'll never meet but they'll they know they're always there and that police forces have really been uh, a modern phenomenon to kind of manage what people at the time saw as a as a problem or people still see as a problem so police forces were created in the 19th century um, and professionalized whatever you know to varying degrees to manage the growth of cities. And to try and control the kind of different kinds of people in public space. And so there's responses to what you might call actual crime or responses to fear of crime, which are always related to fears of uh, difference.
1: So these fears of difference and and even looking at this long legacy that we see, we we watched Twitter in the aftermath of these multiple killings of African Americans by police. And a lot of folks are recognizing these certain parallels between these events and the spectacle of lynching that happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And is there some potential explanation as to why folks are making these parallels? And do you think that that, there's truth in this comparison?
2: That's a very interesting question, first of all. And I think... uh that, yes, there is some truth. The truth, from my particular point of view, is based in racial difference. Uh, or hmm. in, if you take an even earlier view to the 17th century, ethnic difference. Uh, difference is at the core, that is to say. If you take the example of the antebellum South, if you take the example of the actual groups of militia or slave patrollers, the public space was the plantation in many cases. And so – Patrollers' primary duties were to invade, if you will, uh, slave quarters to ensure that the enslaved people – to ensure that enslaved people were acting as laborers who would do nothing more than contribute that value into the plantation system. Uh, If people are making the case that they're feeling that these professionalized police forces are actually – uh, attempting to control and attempting to control that mm-hmm. sort of difference, I think that that's a very strong case.
4: I think one of the parallels, perhaps, that people are pointing to also is um, state-sanctioned violence mm-hmm. against certain racialized populations. Right? Um, in the case of lynching, we know that oftentimes um, uh, lynchings occurred at the res- at the hand of mobs. Um, As a result of um, mob violence, of uh, meeting out uh, vigilante justice, right? When someone was, um, you know, locked up in a local jail, they might come and take that, um, you know, often African-American men, um, but sometimes others out of jail and, you know, meet out their own form of justice. In the cases that we've seen recently, though, uh, what we're witnessing is police themselves, uh, committing th- uh that violence and essentially doing it with impunity, right? Not um having to not having any consequences for their actions.
3: I at first when you asked the question, I was a little nervous about making too casual a comparison mm-hmm. yeah. of the two. Um, in part, I mean if for nothing else, you know, uh most of the officers involved in any of these shootings have have used self defense as an explanation for why they did it, and then there's an, a debate about what is self defense. You know, does it apply in these circumstances? Which is something that would would never show up in a in a lynching case, right? That in most of those cases, um, the people involved saw them as uh, they were acting out justice, and there really wasn't much debate about it, and. Whatever alleged crime had occurred had already occurred, and that the people doing the lynching were themselves not acting in the heat of the moment
0: and i 'm wondering if there's kind of a connection here um, between kind of the popular culture of lynching right i 'm thinking of things like postcards that folks would take and send across the country um, and the videos right of we have some videos right of these now that people take with their phones and things like that that go viral and people watch
4: across the country as well. Do you think that 's part of the explanation for this comparison? It might be. I mean, I think there's uh, an element of public spectacle to this, right? You know, lynchings in the past were could be community events that people came out to witness. Um, in this case, now, when, you know, all of us have uh, easy access to um, video cameras and can record things on our phones, then, um, and this gets distributed very rapidly um, on the Internet, then it does also become um, something to consume. And, of course, um, In our context today, it's often met with a tremendous amount of outrage.
2: And I agree with uh, the example of public spectacle. What actually comes to mind is the Emmett Till case of 1955 Mm -hmm. uh, and the way that his mother particularly used his open casket picture Mm. to uh, generate the sentiment that ultimately was wrapped into the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century I don't know to what degree people are actually recalling that sort of strategy, but I think that there's something to be said there.
3: Yeah, I wonder if the better analogy isn't um, not the postcards that were sent up by the lynchers themselves to either uh, advertise it or commemorate it in some way, so much as like someone like I.D.B. Wells, who was you know a journalist trying to bring wider attention to a social problem, lynching. And I wonder if those you know, in an age of citizen journalists, right, where anyone can videotape something, the people involved aren't themselves trying to draw attention to what they see as a larger, larger problem.
0: And so building on our conversation so far, um, it's making me wonder who or what groups have been the primary targets of policing historically in the United States? Um, we've really been talking about it as an African-American issue so far. And I'm wondering what other groups, including African-Americans, have been targets of policing in America?
4: Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think a um, um A large uh, part of uh, law enforcement's purpose has been historically to control labor. Uh, and to maintain the social order. So anyone that was seen as threatening to um, either, you know, the economic system or the social mores of the times uh, were generally, uh, you know, scrutinized, um, put under surveillance and uh, uh, watched much more carefully. In the late 19th century, this would have included uh, political radicals, uh, labor organizers, you know, union advocates, uh, those types of groups. Um, In the early 20th century, um, as well, this might include um, sex workers, which I know um, Clay might be able to talk more about um, in terms of the way that um, public spaces were policed along the lines of sexuality, for example. But in the 20th century in American cities, particularly as... uh, growing numbers of racial minorities migrated to cities, African-Americans coming from the south to the north, uh, Mexican-Americans migrating either from Mexico or from Texas, um, Puerto Ricans coming from the island to cities like New York, Chicago, uh, Cleveland, for example. Uh, As neighborhoods underwent racial succession and racial change, police became very important in maintaining the racial boundaries of those communities and uh, either keeping uh, racialized minority groups out of particular uh, neighborhoods, predominantly white neighborhoods, um, or uh, keeping them in line and letting them know that they were not welcome in certain communities. Um,
3: you know, I also, I also feel like implicit in the question is not like, who have the police been focused on, right? Because I feel like most, for most of the 20th century, which I know best, There's been a consensus that police are necessary, that police do a public function like teachers and healthcare workers and so forth. And so the the debate is usually about who is disproportionately policed rather than whether or not there should be police in the first place. So one thing that your question brings to mind is there's an ongoing – yeah, we've been talking a lot about race and class. But also uh, gender has been a a kind of central thing that police have um, disproportionately and perhaps unfairly policed over – over time, So there's cases in the 50s of women wearing slacks to bars, um, being arrested for gender nonconformity. There's also kind of public health campaigns during World War II uh, where women in bars alone, regardless of whether they're wearing slacks or not, would be picked up as part of anti-prostitution campaigns. And that kind of sense that people need to conform to certain gender norms has kind of played out in the more recent past when – uh, gender non-conforming individuals, transgender people, have been really disproportionately policed and harassed. And there's a, a statistic that Lambda Legal compiled that uh, one out of five transgender or gender non-conforming people who were surveyed in 2011 who had interacted with the police said that they had been harassed and sometimes even violently so by by the police.
1: When we look at these groups and kind of look at these controversies surrounding police, um, and you're kind of hinting at these, but they reflect larger social problems, it seems, like racial inequality or issues surrounding urban change. And when when do they reflect issues that are unique specifically to law enforcement, as well as these controversies surrounding police?
3: You know, in some ways, the police reflect the society in which they live, right? The police officers are people, but also they are part of an institution police forces that are tied to federal budgets, that are tied to city budgets and so forth. So one thing that comes to mind um, to me is the ways in which the, these fights about about policing are tied into the larger questions of urban and metropolitan inequality. So you know, Albuquerque either leads the nation in terms of police shootings or is one of the leaders. And that's a city that recently had to go through a hiring, you know, a hiring upsurge to try and get more police officers in which they had to kind of cut corners to get police officers who were rejected by suburban police departments around Albuquerque to try and get the numbers that they were looking for and a lot of the people who have been shot or harassed by the police are are mentally ill, right? And the fact that their very presence on the the street is tied into larger issues around housing, mental health facilities, and so forth. So in some ways, the the, the police shootings don't operate in a vacuum, and the the ethical questions that come out of them are bigger than just whether or not the police should have pulled the trigger.
4: The issue of police-community relations and uh, excessive use of force by uh, certain police officers is absolutely tied to larger social issues, um, like mental health that uh, Professor Howard points to and um, it reminds he reminds me of uh, a case of a Native American man whose name is escaping me right now uh, in Seattle I believe who was an artist um, he was featured in this documentary um, called Honor totem but he was an artist a wood carver and um, he uh, had some mental health issues and was shot in the street in um, uh, in the back, actually, by a police officer, because he was seen as threatening, he was carrying a carving knife um, out in public, a wood carving knife um, so the uh, the violence that uh, police have brought down upon the mentally ill definitely has to do with the kinds of uh, the lack of support that we 've had for um, mental illness, the closing of um, facilities, and the lack of resources. Um, for people who need that kind of health care, absolutely. But in thinking about other issues and what I know best, the mid-20th century and um, neighborhood change uh, in Chicago, for example... There are a couple different things, right, that we need to keep in mind. One is that police, um, as Clay said, do reflect uh, the prejudices of uh, the larger society, or the community around them. And so in neighborhoods where African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, other groups were not welcomed by white residents, for example, police were often the front line, the state sanction line to reinforce racial boundaries, to keep people out or to keep people in their place, so to speak. Um, But oftentimes, some of the tensions that happen between uh, new uh, incoming communities in urban areas and law enforcement had to do with cultural misunderstandings, very basic things. Not being able to communicate to people because of language barriers, for example, or um, – criminalizing certain activities that for some populations are seen as perfectly legitimate and normal and socially acceptable, like congregating in public on the front stoop or hanging out in a street corner, you know, um, playing dice or, you know, playing cards, that kind of thing. So when these kinds of cultural misunderstandings or, or, um, you know, Differences of opinion about what was publicly acceptable behavior uh, came uh, to a head in these communities. And oftentimes they would result uh, in, you know, very public conflicts and uh, unfortunately, in some cases, um, violence.
2: There is also uh, a parallel in the 19th century when it comes to uh, what Professor Fernandez explains as the front line in cases of conspiracy, in cases of uh, enslaved people planning revolt or actual revolt. Uh, Nat Turner's Rebellion, for instance, comes comes to mind in 1831. Uh, the patrollers and the local county militias were mobilized against or to corral uh, to bring under control these instances. And so militias in particular were locally sanctioned, uh, in some cases state sanctioned.
0: And I'm wondering if, if these conversations about um, you know, police brutality or excessive force of whether it's modern police or uh, earlier militias and things, um, how these things occurring today are similar to those that occurred in the past, and you know, things like urban uprisings of the '60s and '70s are coming to mind, um, as is kind of the urban crisis of the mid-20th century. and it seems like there might be some parallels between today and that period. One of the things that
3: happened in the 60s, with the exception of the riots that took place after Martin Luther King's assassination, most of the riots um, that took place were in response to police misconduct. And there was like a, there was a federal study of Detroit in the mid 60s, before the big riot in 67, that showed that about 42% of the police force, which was almost entirely white, was described as anti-Negro. And part of what police forces have struggled with are residency requirements. and So on one hand, if you don't have a resi- residency requirement, police forces often draw from predominantly white suburbs. But then in the 60s, a lot of the white police officers were living in transitional neighborhoods, neighborhoods that were predominantly white, but were slowly being integrated and becoming predominantly black, which then translated into the ways in which they policed the larger city. So I was just thinking about how Ferguson, which is a suburb, right, but it's a suburb that is racially transitioning. And so there's a predominantly white police force that's sort of left over from an earlier era. And you can kind of see a similar pattern playing out as neighborhoods flip from one race to another. White flight moves farther out into the county or back into the city somewhere else.
4: Yeah, if you uh if we want to talk about the larger social context uh, with these um recent episodes, we absolutely have to uh mention the war on drugs of course, right? And our drug policy and that has been at the center of a lot of this policing and uh tensions in uh police community relations in many inner city communities. But um to uh, uh touch upon the issue of um urban riots in the 1960s and 70s for example, um they were very much uh uh, often, about police brutality, about um, the frustration and anger that um, uh, black and brown communities had with a very hostile police force in many uh, cities in the country uh, that were constantly um, raining down on on um, particularly uh, African American and latino men with impunity, and this was widespread i mean i can 't overstate just how difficult it was to be um, you know, a person of color in inner cities undergoing racial transition, experiencing deindustrialization, and um, witnessing the demographic changes that were happening in the mid-20th century, and how this played itself out, the social anxieties about this played themselves out in uh, the contact between police and um, these uh, communities.
2: I think if we think of the 19th century, and I'll draw upon uh, Nat Turner's rebellion of 1831 again, uh, we're not speaking as much of the types of demographic shifts in the American South uh, that we think about in the 20th century. But what we are thinking about in many ways is the violence that was at the core of controlling enslaved people uh, and the ways that enslaved people responded to this violence, uh, responded to vicious whippings or responded to other mutilations against the body in particular, Um, And the most recent work on Nat Turner's rebellion explains very clearly that this was something that was drawn upon by an individual who in turn inspired others to join. And so on the one hand, you had the the rebels themselves, uh, Nat Turner and the other slaves who rose in Southampton County in that year. But the militia, the sheriff's posses and the like – were also drawn from certain segments of the society. They, too, were uh, certain ethnic groups or certain class of people who were not particularly the state itself, if you will. Uh, They were not particularly the governing officials, if you will. They were poorer white individuals uh, who were mobilized by the state to protect the state. And in so doing, they could... uh, draw a line in the sand and reinforce the difference that I think we've been
0: yeah, another level of controlling labor right yeah. um, from kind of a different dynamic so
1: and when we look at this historically and you all have brought up amazing kind of examples of of this kind of history of police community police you know state relations in the past what do these offer us to for thinking and currently addressing these dilemmas we see today
4: I think the first thing we have to keep in mind is that these dynamics are not new, right? Um, As as unfortunate and tragic as these cases are, the killing of um, Eric Garner, um, uh, Michael Brown, and other young African-American men, um, anyone who was around in the 1960s will tell you that this, you know, um, uh, occurred frequently in many cities throughout the country, uh, you know, back then. Um, And going back even further, we know that there's been this longer history of um, this kind of state-sanctioned violence against certain racialized um, populations. I think, um, you know, the media has a particular interest in drawing you in and giving you news, something that's new, that's novel, that's interesting, that will, you know, um, attract viewers or listeners or readers. And uh, I think as historians, what we—one of our roles uh, in society is— that we remind people that um, we need to look to the past uh, and look to lessons from the past to help inform our, rea- our responses to uh, current-day dilemmas and phenomena that uh, we struggle with.
3: One of the consequences of police misconduct has been social movements that have organized to try and reform uh, the police and government in general. That's true of um, gay activism. I know in San Francisco, historians commonly say that harassment of gay bars led to a kind of coherent gay community that then became a social movement that later um, not only reformed the police, but elected people like Harvey Milk to office. You know, it's too soon to say, but it, it feels to me like the conversation around first Trayvon Martin and then Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and and so forth, Eric Garner, is different than Arthur McDuffie in the early 80s or um, – even Rodney King in the early 90s, where there was a brief moment where people were talking about the you know, the question of police violence and whether or not, you know, quote unquote, it actually happened to the more recent history, like in the last year or two, where people seem to accept that it is happening and that the question is to what extent is it happening and, and what needs to be done about it. So we might be living in the early stages of a, of a social movement built around civil rights, maybe also gender and sexual rights as well.
2: What we are speaking of and what we are witnessing is not necessarily new, and that what we can learn from the history that we seek to tell are ways that we may be able to deal with what we are are experiencing in the present.
0: Lily Fernandez is author of Brown in the Windy City and a history professor at Ohio State. Clayton Howard is a history professor at Ohio State as well and researches the history of American cities and suburbs. And Marcus Nevius is a PhD candidate here at OSU studying the agency of maroons and enslaved runaways in eastern North Carolina. Thank you all for joining us today on History Talk. Thank you.
4: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas bragg Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Patiandi and Leticia Wiggins. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.